Second chances. Our society loves stories about second chances. They make great plots for movies, like It's a Wonderful Life. But when it comes to the formerly incarcerated or just as involved, the data tells a different story. Annually, 2.3 million people are incarcerated in this country, with 12,500 being released every week, according to a report from the Brookings Institution. Of those who are released, almost two-thirds will return to prison within three years, and 55% find employment within the first year of release. Not much of a second chance, right? When we're talking about the criminal justice system, depending on your lived experience, it can all feel a little far off. Something that other people deal with. So here to put some of these issues to more practical and relatable terms is someone who understands them deeply, both personally and professionally. Milwaukee Municipal Judge Derek Mosley. We talk about issues about, you know, mass incarceration, but some of the biggest issues deals with people when they get out. Yeah, so uh, generally when people get out of prison, the, the first thing is just internal. People who I have talked to who've been, you know, justice involved, talk about they have this own, their own complex where they think everybody thinks or knows that they're a felon, right? And so no matter where they go, they feel as if this guy knows I'm a felon. And so you have that internal dilemma they have to deal with. And uh, that's a huge burden to take care of. And then the external, which they don't control, are everything from no driver's license, no transportation to get to job, no jobs. Um, you might have children you have to take care of. I mean, there are all these things that are going on, and you're still, you know, you still have that felony conviction on your record. And, and many employers look at that, and um, some of them don't hire people with felony convictions, and so. There's a whole host of things that are barriers. Coming out of prison, battling those internal and external issues, you can see how difficult it could be for someone to navigate, especially if they're on their own. That lack of support on the other end of prison, it's a notoriously American problem. So here's the biggest issue. And I think a lot of people, and I, I was guilty of this myself. So I thought, all right, someone who's coming out of a correctional facility, let's just get them a job. So if we get them a job, they're working every day, then we don't have to worry about them going back into the system. And that makes sense. Until you have to realize that people need support. And just throwing them a job doesn't mean they're going to be able to get to that job. Doesn't mean that if they have issues with an uh, employer or with a manager, how to deal with those issues so that they don't get in trouble and lose that job. People need support services. Also, a, a large majority of the people coming out of correctional facilities have a number of issues, mental health issues, alcohol and other drug dependency issues, issues of trauma. And so if we don't surround them or wrap them in services other than just employment, then they're not gonna make it. Remember, we're releasing people back into the same environment that they were in that brought them into the system. And just because you served your time and you're released, it doesn't mean that you're going to live in the suburbs, right? You might be going back to the same exact neighborhood that you lived in, which presented all those issues. And now you still have your trauma. You still have your mental health issues. You still have your alcohol and drug dependency issues. 
So what we can do as a system is to provide that wrap, that service, right? To wrap these individuals in those services, mental health treatment, alcohol and drug uh, treatment, uh, treatment to deal with trauma, underlining trauma, which is the reason why most of the people are incarcerated in the first place. I wanted you to hear from Judge Mosley directly for this story, because as you hear later on, my main guest faced nearly every issue he mentioned. The Justin involved faced many challenges to get a second chance in our country, from employment to housing to dealing with the stigma our society places on them. Even after they paid their debt to society, they continue to pay long after they are released as they struggle to hold jobs and find housing. However, there is a startup founder who is not only trying to solve this problem, but also has experienced these issues as a justice-involved individual. He spent time in the federal prison system. From 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, this is Diverse Disruptors, a podcast about leaders, entrepreneurs, and trailblazers who found their own way to innovate and did so with inclusion and accessibility at the forefront. This is the first episode of the second season, and our guest is Ruben Gaona, co-founder of The Way Out. The Way Out is an anti-bias employment platform that specializes in the hiring of justice-involved job seekers and also provides additional social support services and technologies to help them integrate into their new roles successfully. But before we learn more about The Way Out, I want to know more about Ruben's story and his journey from a promising military career to a time in the federal prison system to becoming a startup founder. His story is powerful and emotional and at times has moved me to tears. We even share a couple things in common, like being a veteran and love of chess. His story illustrates that you don't have to be from Harvard or Stanford to build a successful startup. We start Ruben's story with his childhood growing up in Texas. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, all right, born and raised um, there, lived in uh, Segundo Barrio, which translates to Second Ward, that at the time of me growing up, and even up until now, it used to be one of the worst neighborhoods in El Paso, Texas. Um, single mom. Uh, my dad was around eventually, you know, here and there, but it was, he was um, he was not the best father. Abusive, verbally, mentally, physically, towards my mom. The details here are difficult to listen to. A lot of times, he literally almost killing my mom. Mm. So at, at an early age of eight, uh, while a lot of people were playing in the playgrounds and having fun, I was running towards a payphone to call 911. I still remember the first time that that he actually like literally was like seeing my mom all full of blood. Jeez. And I was like, what do I do now? And I had remembered from being in school that, you know, in case of an emergency, dial 911. This pattern of violence continued throughout Ruben's childhood during his formative years, getting more violent and traumatic every time. Then his father's violent behavior finally reached its peak. And Ruben says, it nearly became deadly. And one day across the street from us was a park. And I was at the park playing with my godmother's son, who happened to be like a mom to me, raised me. Uh, and all of a sudden, I see him pull up, gets out with a gun. And I was like, I knew no one was home, but I'm looking at him, I was like, and I remember telling her, uh, my godmother's son, that's my dad, that's my dad, hide, hide, hide. And I just kept looking at him from across the street. And I was like, he's going to kill us. He's literally going to kill us. I was like, what do I do next? 
So I ran towards my godmother, told him, we, my mom can't go home. My mom can't go home. My dad's in the house with a gun. Mm. Uh, he broke through, through the bathroom uh, window. And she's like, okay, hold on. So they called the cops. The cops came. My mom had gotten there. And I was like, mom, you can't go in. You can't go in. And I told the cops, you know, he's in there with a gun. And they're like, are you sure what you saw? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so they opened the door. My mom opened the door. That, that She let them go in. And they did. They found him in the closet, hidden under dirty clothes, you know. <laughs> and that was, I think that was around the last time I ever saw him. After that, he had come out later on, but he got into trouble and got sentenced to 20 years in prison for robbery, mm. armed robbery. After his dad went away, Ruben's mom raised him and his four siblings herself. A single mother and survivor who didn't speak any English, but she had Ruben. I used to say I wasn't smart. I mean... Everybody else, contrary to believes that I'm the smart one. And I always laugh because I, I took speech classes all my life. So I have speech experiments. So I always I was struggle with reading and even speaking. So I was like, okay, you guys think I'm smart, but I'm not smart. By the age of 10, Ruben was helping his mom earn a few bucks from her own kitchen. She would pack up corn, burritos, and cans of soda. Then Ruben would sell them in downtown El Paso. So at a young age, I was already hustling. Where do you think this spirit of hustling came from? Were you, did you, were you inspired by somebody? That, like know, if we're being a 10-year-old, like to say, I'm going to take care of my mom and do this. But you, know, you hear 10-year-olds like, I'm going to help my mom. I'm going to do the dishes or I mess that up. Or, but you decided to like make money and there must have been some, something you saw. or. I owe it a lot to my godmother. You know, my godmother, her sons, older sons were in the Navy. But she, one thing that I always remember that she told me at a young age is never be embarrassed to do something the right way if you need to do it. You know, it's more embarrassing to go steal and get caught and then you have to go back to the same store where you got caught. So she's like, and she was always selling stuff. She would go have rumor sales and everything. So I, was, I always had that need to always help her. So I think she installed on me that as long as you're doing right, there's nothing for you to be embarrassed of. These values imprinted on Ruben. By this time, he's a teenager living in Milwaukee. He is getting to the end of high school and forming his own social circles and got into chess. I used to go to the Boys and Girls Club, and one time I saw someone playing chess, and I was like, I, I want to play this game. And just watching them play, eventually I learned how to play chess. <laughs> so, so You still play? Yes, I still play. We got to play. I, I played chess in high school and I was in chess club. So was I. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fun story. I'll tell you later how I joined the chess club. <laughs> All over a girl, but I joined uh, it. <laughs> that's always the way, isn't it? That, that's always the way. That's always the way. It was over a girl and a guy who told me that he used to be the third board of the chess club and he would walk around school thinking he's all that. And one day we were in um, Woodshop and he was making a chess board and he had just finished a beautiful chess board out of wood. And I was like, Hey, I'll play you a game. He's like, man, you can't play. And I was why can't I play? And you know, Milwaukee's real segregated. And mm-hmm. I went to Pulaski High School. And believe it or not, there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of Hispanics. Even though it's located in the south side, there wasn't a lot of Hispanics. And he's like, man, you're Mexican. You guys can't play. Dang. And I found that offensive. I, would I was too. like, I was like, <laughs> okay, let's play. And I whooped his ass. Oh, excuse my language. I whooped <laughs> That's his ass. That's all good. You okay. know, I, 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 I was like, beat him. And he was like, do you ever thought about joining the chess club? I didn't even know there was a chess club. <laughs> I was like, is there a chess club? He's like, yeah. I was already a, what was I? A junior. And they made an announcement that whoever registered for the chess club, the first 10 people would get a $25 gift card. Oh, wow. 
And I was like, there was this girl that I liked that used to be in the chess club. And I was like, I was already there in the class. I was like, hey, I'll register. <laughs> and and I, I got was blessed. We, we we made it to two nationals. You know, yeah. it was the first time that we went to two nationals. I normally used to play sometimes. Uh, I would alter between one, two, and three boards. He continues to play chess. Ruben was kind of a straight-laced teen, he says. He didn't even drink or smoke. And people actually kind of respected him for that. But then, an unexpected development put his whole life on pause. So, eventually, at 18, I started hanging around with people. And little behold, you know that I ended up getting my first wife, by that time, my girlfriend, pregnant. Mm. So, I was like, I'm about to graduate. You're 17. 17. I'm about to graduate. And now I'm about to be a dad. Mm. I'm a senior. And I was like, what do I do? And I still did not know how to even tell my mom because I know how disappointed she was going to be. Now with his first child, the stakes suddenly became much higher. Like I graduated high school, what am I going to do next? And I reverted back to calling my godmother and asking her like for some guidance. And she's like, join the Navy. <laughs> I was like, make a career. You're going to have health insurance. You have a good paying job. If you're married, you're going to get housing for your kids and your wife. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to join the Navy. You know, left uh, April 4th, 2001 to the Navy. So my Navy career was always fun. I enjoyed it. I mean, my deployments were amazing. I loved them. And eventually, um, coming back, uh, within my second deployment, actually, yeah, my second deployment coming back, I had gotten, I hurt my back. I had had, uh, I ended up having abdominal surgery that put a lot of pain on my back. Mm. And medical problems also came with that. And when I was getting ready to re-enlist after six and a half years, I was like, you know what? I want to sign a four-year contract, make mm-hmm. it 10. Because those who have been in the military know we do four, then two is six. Mm-hmm. Six, four, give us 10. We have to have way retirement, am I right? Yep. Retire by 20. So I was like, you know what? That's going to be my goal. I'm going to follow the same pattern. So I had already looked at being in the Navy as a career. I enjoyed uh, early promotions, number one rank among my peers, it was a lifestyle for me. I enjoyed it. But eventually came, I still remember when they told me uh, that I wasn't going to be able to re-enlist because of the back. my back, that I couldn't be, I wasn't fit for sea duty. Hmm. For those who don't know, sea duty? To go back into a ship. Okay. You, you know, so when you do sea short, hmm. so you do four years sea, three years short duty. Okay. So it's all based on your rate, but that's how you do it normally in the Navy. So I was, it was time, I had already been in short duty, so it was time to go back for the next four years to a ship. And there's like, nope, you're not ready. You know, you can't pass your physical evaluation board, so we're going to have to discharge you. And I was like, what do you mean you're going to discharge me? I was like, I'm already a person, personnel man. Like, I work in admin. Like, what does that got to do with me, mm. you know, doing anything? They're like, you can still be a hazard in the ship. I was like, if something happens. And just like that, he was told he couldn't re-enlist. And literally within 45 days, my whole world changed. I was in the military 14 years, and I wanted to go deployment. I found a unit that I love, a reservist. And most of my years prior, I wasn't, like, feeling them. And this unit in Chicago, public affairs, mostly black soldiers and officers, and mostly people of color. Yeah. I felt, I found something. And then they said, well, let's get you to public affairs school. So I did that. They were at Fort Dix. Drove up to Fort Dix for deployment. Did all the deployment with them. And it was so much fun. I was looking forward to it. I was about to be in charge of the media operations in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And then like a day before, two days before, 
I have Crohn's. They come to me, he's like, you can't go. And I'm sitting there like, what do you mean I can't go? Like, my head's like, why didn't you tell me this like four or five weeks ago? I can't go. And uh, no, you can't go. Like, I have three doctors, two military, one civilian saying, I'm my Crohn's in remission. And it kind of said, like, what happens if something happens? I'm like, I'm in the embassy. The fortress, they call it. Yeah. I'm in the embassy. But what if something happens? Like, the worst that happens, I have to go to the bathroom. Mm. That's the worst of Crohn's. I go to the bathroom. And they said, no. I, that, I didn't want to come back. They, so they forced me out. Deployment. And I didn't want to come back here to Milwaukee. Like, mentally, it was... It still affects me to stay. And then, like, I feel like I make up for it because I, I became more of a workaholic to prove myself. Mm. I don't know if that was your experience, but like, talk to me about the mental experience you went through going. Because I like, I broke down. I'm not. I, I, I isolated myself in my own inner world. Uh, I had five kids at that time. My first thought was, I don't ever want my kids to go through what I went through growing up. What am I gonna do? I had not saved no money, mm. and that was at my fault. You know, I was like, I never thought I was gonna get discharged. So I was like, what am I gonna do? What's my next steps? I don't have nothing prepared. I have nothing planned. I had just had a baby. Mm. I was like, I was like, what am I gonna do? And I started drinking. So literally started drinking heavily. Eventually, when I got discharged, by that point I was already drinking. And once I got discharged, I started smoking weed without no one knowing, mm. doing doing drugs without. Your no wife one. didn't know. No, mm. no, no, never. She, you know, that poor woman. I tell you, I love her to death. She, she, she went through through hell with me. Out of a job, a career actually. Ruben was depressed, hard up for money, and abusing drugs. Not in the best place mentally. And with the pressures of being a father, he thought back to his childhood. I knew how to hustle. And it wouldn't be long before a series of choices, beginning right here, landed him behind bars. I was like, I need money. I need to find a way to sustain my family. And I started selling drugs. Hmm. Got involved in the drug uh, crime organization, started selling drugs. Back in drugs. Milwaukee? Here in Milwaukee, all the way, well, uh, from El Paso to Milwaukee. But it all caught up to me in 2010. Hmm. In 2010, I ended up getting uh, federally, federally indicted, March 16th. So how... Did they catch you? Like, how did they find out? Uh, they found uh, one of uh, our best friends. Uh, he ended up getting caught in 2009, and he started collaborating with the law, mm. you know, so to reduce his time. So in order for him to not get sentenced at all, he would have to give people away. Mm. So he gave away someone else. They still, that wasn't enough. He was still going to get sentenced, and he didn't feel the need. He didn't want to go to prison. So he said, well, I'll give you off someone else. And they're like, well, who's you going to give us? And he gave us up. And he gave me, my brother, my sisters, you Ooh. know, my cousins, friends of the family. It was a 22-person 20, indictment. Wow. You know, six guys for drug conspiracy and uh, 16 females. One of those women who were indicted was his own wife. They got her on money laundering, but only on a technicality. Ruben was using a joint checking account with her name on it to conceal money from his drug crimes. His wife had no idea. Thankfully, the charges were dropped and her name was cleared. But it was a devastating time for her, Ruben says. She had to endure 
not only finding out that what I was doing illegally you get caught up in it without even knowing those three years you know when you get caught up in that lifestyle she found out that all the infidelities that I was doing mm. when I was living that lifestyle and she's like it, it literally broke her down but you know she she maintained her face and she 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 said you know what I'm with you and I remember telling her like when I got arrested and I got extradited I was in El Paso and they extradited me all the way to Milwaukee when I landed here two months and I remember seeing her the first time I told her you can leave you know if you want to get divorced I totally understand I know I failed you I know I was a bad 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 husband probably a bad dad I was like so you're more than free to leave if you want a divorce and she said no I was like I'm here with you I was like we'll, we'll do this together and she did. She, you know, she fought. She, she, she stayed with me through my whole sentence. Oh. How long were you in? I got sentenced to 120 months, which is equivalent to 10 years. Out of 10 years, I did eight years. I did seven years in prison and one year in the halfway house. During his time in federal prison, Ruben had ample time to reflect on the timeline of his life. His traumatic childhood and abusive father, how that led him to selling burritos on the street to support his family, going to the Nationals for chess in high school, becoming a father and serving honorably in the Navy, then selling drugs and getting caught. All those points on Ruben's timeline, they lead to this, another man of color in a cage. I felt like I had led the one woman who raised me to be a good person like I had let her down. Mm. Like my mom didn't raise me like this. My godmother didn't raise me like this. And here I am, locked up in a prison. After the break, we pick up with Ruben during his sentence, how he used his military training to get through prison, and the reality he found on the other side of his sentence. Next, on Diverse Disruptors. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Information on tech advancement, venture investments, and careers at innovation.nm.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and from UW-Milwaukee. UWM believes innovative ideas don't only belong to business majors. The UWM Lubar Entrepreneurship Center aims to help students in all majors develop creative ideas, advance careers, and get startups started. UWM.edu. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Generator, a platform for the creative economy that connects startup founders, musicians, and artists. Information can be found at Generator.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Verizon, helping 1 million small businesses through its Small Business Digital Ready program. This online curriculum is designed to give small businesses the tools to succeed in today's digital world. More information at CitizenVerizon.com. We're back on Diverse Disruptors and my conversation with Ruben Gaona. At this point, he is at his ultimate low. At the beginning of his sentence in federal prison, Ruben says his military training became useful during his time behind bars. He already had the mental toughness to live in discomfort to take orders, but it was still difficult, and he had no shortage of time to dwell on his mistakes. 
Ruben takes us back to this poignant moment with another inmate. I remember going out to the yard and I was walking around when a guy, a friend of mine, pulled me to the side. And he just asked me a simple question. He's like, I want to ask you something, Ruben. And I was like, what's going on? What do you have to show for? Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, yeah, what do you have to show for all those drug dealings, all that money? What, how many businesses do you owe? How many houses? And I was like, I don't know no businesses. I never owned a business. Hmm. Well, how many houses? You still have your house, your wife and your kids are okay? I was like, no, I don't have no house. They took everything. They literally left me with nothing. And he's like, read them like this. I don't understand how you have all your friends right here that you hang around with, you know, in prison, they're Hispanic, Mexicans. You have some that are getting deported, but they own their businesses here. They open businesses. They came from Mexico and opened a legal business here. Some own grocery stores, some own bars, construction companies. Some of them have their beautiful houses here. And their only crime was coming to this country illegally. I was like, but they have something to show for. And they're here legally. You got presented with all the opportunities. You grew up from the hood. You had a career. And you got nothing to show for. And in that, that day, for the first time, I went back to my uh, cubicle. And I laid there on my rack. And around like 11 o'clock at night, tears just started rolling down my eyes. I just started crying. And I was like, dude, like, and I looked, I remember praying to God and asking God, like, Why? You know, like, why? Like, I can't believe that. Mm. That is so true. I have nothing to show for. I was like, they took, I was like, I've, I can't blame no one but myself. So I remember getting down, coming off my rack and say, you know what? I will no longer allow people to tell me I couldn't do stuff. I sat there and literally thought, why did I do the things I do? And it was like, mainly everything I did was because I was, I was told I couldn't do something. So I said, you know what? From now on, I would never give power to anyone to tell me that I can do something because I could do anything. If I do it the right way, it might take me longer than some other person, but I could also do it. I'll get there if I put in the work. This is a turning point for Ruben. Never letting someone tell him he couldn't do something. That became his new credo. So I wrote a quote right there. I can't doesn't assist. It is an excuse that we tell ourselves to not reach our true potential. And I said, I'm going to leave by this. I'm going to remember my Navy core values of honor, courage, and commitment. Because it's going to take courage and commitment to believe that quote. Because it's going to get put to a test eventually. Mm-hmm. And he did in prison for the next two years. You know, I had a case manager that wouldn't help me. He wouldn't help none of us. And at that moment in time, I said, you know what? I want to be a case manager. When I get out, I want to help out people. Because this can't be the version of a case manager. Case managers are supposed to be here to help people. I was like, and I want to help those people that have walked the same ground that I walked to show them that no matter what we did, we're more than the mistakes we've made. We could actually be successful. So, and and I did that. I did my next two years. You know, I work, worked my way from, from the low to the satellite camp, started got the, the opportunity to go work outside. I was like, okay, now I see positiveness. Now I can see there's life after prison. I was like, now I just can't wait to come home. Finally, in 2017... That day would come. Reuben would leave prison. But he wasn't exactly free. He was placed in a halfway house to finish out his sentence. Normally when you're in the halfway house, one week after you arrive, you have a team. Hmm. So I met with my team from the halfway house, which consists with the staff, probation and parole officers. And, you know, they go in there and they want to know what's your plans, what's your intentions. 
So first off, you know, you introduce yourself. They tell you, they read off your chart while you're there. You know, one of the agents asked me, can you answer me a question, Ruben? And I was like, what's going on? How is a guy that had everything for him ended up selling drugs? And my response to him was like, that's neither here or there. That's the old me. This is the new me right now. And he was like, well, who's the new me? What are you going to do for employment? I was like, I want to be a case manager. I want to help people that are coming out of prisons to show them that we could be successful. Just looked around, looked at everybody, and they're like, you're not, you can't be a case manager, Ruben. And I was like, why can't I be a case manager? And they're like, uh, what about that barrier? And never in my life have I ever heard that word barrier. The barrier he is referencing is his criminal history, his felony conviction in particular. A barrier that 12,500 people weekly, like Ruben, face when exiting the criminal justice system. You know, felons don't become case managers. And I was like, you know what? Where you see a weakness, I see a strength. And I remember having my resume and I threw it on the, on the table. I was like, I was like that got to speak for something. I was like, I'm a Navy veteran. I had a good job with the Department of Defense for three years before I got convicted. I was like, I got total almost 10 years of working for the Department of Defense. That has to carry some kind of weight. And they're like, look, Ruben, you got 30 days. 30 days to get a job. Because if you don't get a job within 30 days, you're liable to go back to prison. And I'm like, give me 45 days. And they're like, you got 30 days. We'll see you in 30 days. And I was like, okay, say no more. And I, I remember the employment co coordinator that was there. She looked at me, put me to the side, and I, she's like, Ruben, I'm telling you right now, the years I've worked here, I don't think I've ever seen someone that has come through here with a resume like yours. Whatever you need from me, you let me know how I can help. That connection turned out to be vital. So she's like, Ruben, she's like, give me your resume. I'm going to give it to the operation manager to look at it. They're looking for case managers. And I was like, <laughs> okay, sure. So she invited me over to come talk to her. So I went over there, talked to Katina Prescott, love her to death. Katina, if you're hearing this, love you. Showed her my resume and she's like, we need male case managers. I was like, your experience and everything you're trying to do speaks highly of you. And we're all, we're all about giving people an opportunity. And I was like, well, what do I need to do? She's like, well, you just need to go to the staffing agency, apply through the staffing agency because we do our, all our temperature perms through the staffing agency. She sent me, emailed me the address. Went a couple days later, went, went over there. Interview went great. Everything was fine until I got asked, why do I have that employment gap? Why do you have that seven-year employment gap? And I was honest. I said, you know what? I just came out of incarceration. I was like, for a drug-related nonviolence offense. I was like, I did return drug abuse program. I'm ready to reintegrate into society. And all I want to do is help people show them that they could be successful. That recruiter was like, give me a minute, walked, came back three minutes later, about three to five minutes, what seems like an eternity, and told me that there was a year waiting list for that position. But, but there was a janitorial position open. And if I wanted, I could take that janitorial position that paid $8.50 an hour. And I already knew this position for uh, telling development specialist, which is case manager, paid close to $20. I was like, you're giving me a three-fourths cut of pay, and you're telling me to sustain my family for $8.50? $8.50? That is barely $18,000 a year working full-time with no holidays. Simply put, it wasn't going to cut it. Even worse, it would put him in danger of falling back into the old patterns. Again, 
out of desperation. I was like, you know what? Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, but no, thank you. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'll keep you guys in mind if I really do need the job. Left, got in my car, and cried. Mm -hmm. The first time I declined a job, all you do coming out of prison is want to get a job. But you, and want, I, you want to have mm -hmm. treated like a human being. Yeah, I want. I, I, a fifth is not going to be. I'm still on the federal poverty line to sustain a family of five. You know, so eventually, what am I going to do? I'm going to go back to knowing what I do best. I'm going to go back to survival mode because it's I can. Mm-hmm. A revolving door. And I said, nope. That night, Ruben talked with his wife about the difficult decision to walk away from a job when the clock was ticking at the halfway house. She persuaded him to go back to the woman, Katrina, and explain the situation one more time. Ruben humbled himself and went to go see her. I told her, thank you. She asked me what happened. I explained to her what happened. She's like, hold on. This woman literally got on the phone, started calling the director, started calling the other supervisors. And she was like, what are you doing right now? Do you have time? And I said, time for what? To fill the application. I was like, with who? With us directly. And can you do an interview next week? And I was like, what? Yeah, most definitely. So she got me set up to get an interview and I ended up getting hired direct, directly through the company. I was one of their best 98% state audits, great talent development specialist. Ruben's life is going better than it has in years. He is excelling at work and providing for his family, despite his status with the criminal justice system. I was one of their go-to persons, hardworking, motivated. But on that one year as a case management manager, what I saw is that stigma that employers had was justice-involved job seekers. I call them justice-involved, formerly incarcerated people. Justice-involved. Huh? Justice-involved, you know? And it's so hard. It's like, you know, for I knew, I saw that I wasn't the only one struggling. So I was like, there's got to be something. I got to do more. The problem is so broad and layered. It's impossible one person to take on. But Ruben still wants to do something, take some kind of action. So he focuses efforts right here in Wisconsin with a startup, The Way Out. So you're thinking about like, because the whole thing about a whole startup, because startups, mm -hmm. you're trying to solve a problem. Yes. Right? You saw a problem and you saw an opportunity to try to solve it. What was the next steps? In 2019, American Family uh, Insurance for Social Impact and Generator had an event at Sherman Phoenix. So the Phoenix, the event was a group of people, formerly incarcerated people, talking about how they managed to be successful. And they asked one simple question, how can we reduce recidivism? My thought was already there, connect employers and employees. Let them see that we're more than the mistakes we made. Uh, I noticed that once we find someone a job, we forget about them. Mm -hmm. We don't know that after 90 days, typical uh, tracking period is 90 days and providing supportive services. What if that 100 day, they're still struggling, something comes up and they still haven't gotten on their feet? What tends to happen is that person loses their job again. It's embarrassed to go ask for help through the company that helped them for the first time because they feel that they failed them. Mm -hmm. And now they're back to, you know, the criminal thinking. It's called survival mode. I'm back to doing what I'm doing. I was like, we need to provide supportive services at least to a year. Make sure these people are being successful in not a job, but a career. And we need to find jobs that are living wage jobs. This A50, 950, it does not work for a person. That's what happened to George Floyd. 
I was listening to a podcast about the story of George Floyd, and he was in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and he wa- and he was surrounded by the things that he didn't want to be around, moved mm-hmm. to Minneapolis. But he had a record. Only job he could get was a bouncer. He was trying different things, and, you know, lo and behold, survival mode. He had mm-hmm. a counterfeit money, and then you know what happened. It happens to a bunch of us. And he was, the podcast was very... It made me cry, like realizing the story of this man just trying to do right. Yeah. You know, follow his passions in music and career. And he was a sports guy too. And, you know, but. Um, the system is set up, you know, and it's been generations through generations that it got set up like that. You know, it's the odds are stacked against us, uh, blacks and browns, you know. Mm-hmm. Numbers, one thing I always told people people can lie, but numbers don't lie. Mm-hmm. You know, the stats are there. Everything's proven. I was like, what else can you say? So so I, with that idea, I brought up the idea of the way out. So when I spoke to my partner, Eli Rivera, he had the same mindset. He had been formerly incarcerated in, uh, about 20 years ago, came out, was able to find job in the hospitality industry, and became pretty successful in the hospitality industry by providing second chance opportunities to uh, formerly incarcerated people in the hospitality industry. And and he just said, you know, the second tenure of his life. I always think he's forty, but I don't. I still don't know, Eli. I think he might be fifty. I don't know. <laughs> he won't. He won't tell me his age. But he's like, I'm going to provide the second better half to to create something to help connect them. I was like, so the first thing we created was an anxious bias employment platform, where people could fill applications, and we'd be able to erase their names, their address, and create this dummy resume that will only speak on their um, characters, their, their strengths, you know, and their skills. You would not know who you're hiring based on name, gender, none of that. Mm. You would not know about his crime. So eventually talking and, you know, we're like, okay, we need to create this. So we started working together, you know, me and Ellie creating this anti-bias employment platform where we would have people apply through the way out. You know, and it would create like this resume for them and we would connect them with employers. And th- we sell the, that idea to Generator. They liked it. We got involved in the G Alpha cohort. Eventually, we, you know, as that came along, we got involved with G Beta. And this G Beta happened when the pandemic happened. Mm. And that's when we realized the need for what we were creating because a lot of reentry service providers were forced to shut down because they didn't have the technical scale up to continue to operate. They still went back to the old ways of PDF files and papers mm. and manila folders. So we're like, you know what? What if we use the Antibias employment platform to bring on board people? You know, so mm. so we started uh, changing the Antibias employment platform to start onboarding for reentry service providers. Mm. And at the same time, we're like, what else can we do? How can we keep them more engaged? How can we communicate with them? And that's where the idea of the My Way Out app came on board. <laughs> We're like, we need to create an app. You know, Ryan Graham, which is our, you know, technical project manager, Erico 53206, shout out to Ryan. Young kid, 20-year-old kid, smart kid. I'm telling you, he is the epitome of what I wish I could have been. He was a developer. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he he's, he translates our our lingo to the tech lingo. <laughs> so so we told him, this is what we want to create. He said, let's let's get on board. We'll, I'll do it. 
And, you know, he came in with us as an internship, young black African-American from 53206, what else can you want him, all right? And being successful. Came on board, hit the, as an intern. Eventually, we said, you know what? Ninelli was like, we need to bring this kid as a partner. He's doing mm-hmm. way too much. I was like, and why not offer him an opportunity? And we did. We offered him partnership in us, so all three of us are partners. So when someone comes on board, a justice involved job seeker applies through the way out, we find out first what their supported services need. What does someone need? What's their personal goals? Mm. We're, we worried about the employment side at the end. Because if you can't take care of the, two, the first two, what good does it do to give someone a job if they have child care issues? Mm-hmm. Let's find out, or they have transportation issues. Let's find out a way how we could address your supportive services, your personal goals, set goals for you, and then we'll get you a job that's going to pay you at least $15 or better. And at the same time, while you're doing the app, every time you hit one of those tracks, one of those goals, that each person creates their own goals. Because each person, their, their re-entry is different. Mm-hmm. So that's what we call it, my way out. What is your way out, we ask them. Give us your goals. Because for years after years that you've been in prison, you've been told what to do. Now you need to take charge of your life. Tell us how, how, how you want it to look. And then we'll drop incentives. So someone might hit, hit their second goal and they might get a $50 restaurant card. Oh, nice. You know, $100 gas card, bus passes, a $50 visa card, a meal for the family to go eat. And that's how we keep them engaged and show them mm-hmm. that, you know what? When you hire someone from the way out, you're not just hiring the individual, you're hiring a group of people that are vested in them. And that's how the way out developed. Um, American Family Insurance, um, Social Impact, you know, they they love our idea. They, when we told them what we were doing, and they say, you know what, they stepped up to the plate. They weren't one of those companies that just talk the talk. Mm-hmm. They say, you know what, we're in Social Impact. We also want to walk the walk. We'll sponsor 15 reentry service providers for the whole state of Wisconsin. And that was our first pretty much contract grant mm-hmm. that got us going. So we, right now, I think we have close to about 200 people already on our platform that are mm-hmm. getting ready to come out within the next 18 months that we are already starting to sit, work work with them and get tracks ready mm-hmm. for them. What's the ultimate goal? Where do you see, where do you see this going in the next five years? Uh, one of the things that we're getting ready to do is hopefully start going into the VC uh, field, you know, our for our first pre-seed money. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not going to lie, it's scary. Hmm. It's it, it always scary when you when you talk to uh, VC guys and none of them look like you, am I right? Yeah, that's so, true. And then you read and how a lot of the funding, 3% goes to black and brown. And so me and Ellie say, well, 3% goes to black and brown. How much percent goes to someone that's two co-founders that are brown and they're both felons? Yeah. So we're probably at one point five. So, <laughs> so we're we're looking to take that challenge. You know, like I said, I can doesn't assist. What would you say to somebody, a young black or brown woman or man, who maybe had a similar path as yours and feels lost, feels like a failure, don't know? They figure, like, the best thing for me is just to try to keep doing this hustle and hopefully I don't get caught. What would you say to that person? For all, all those out there listening to this, first and foremost, I would like to tell y'all, bet on yourself. Don't allow no one to tell you that you cannot do something because of where you were raised and born. If you're from the hood, if you grew up rich, whatever, don't allow someone to steal your dreams. 
I tell everybody you could do anything you want to do it. That time might take you a little longer, but you can still do it and do it the right way. One of the things that I write myself every morning and I tell myself just three powerful words, dream, plan and execute. Don't ever allow anyone to steal your dreams because I think a lot of our mistakes authors are because we allow people to steal those dreams. When we tell someone that we have a dream and they say, you're not going to be able to do that. No, you could do anything you want to do. Thank you, Ruben. I wanted to start season two of Diverse Disruptors with Ruben's story, mainly because it shows that no one has the same path. No one's story is the same. Ruben's life started with trauma. And from there, he had honorable highs and incredible lows. And now he is harnessing all of it to forge a new path of his own design. Ruben is creating his own second chance and making sure others like him have the same opportunity. To learn more about his startup, The Way Out, visit RadioMilwaukee.org slash disruptors, and we'll have links in the show notes. You can also find links in the description of this episode on whatever platform you're listening to. Coming up on episode two of Diverse Disruptors season two, another founder with an unusual path. Her story is both a success story and one of failure. Her startup had to unfortunately shut down. So why tell you about her story? Too often, we only hear the good parts of a startup story. You always hear about a, a startup that goes IPO or gets acquired by companies like Google or Facebook and make millions and millions of dollars. The easy, digestible, and satisfying accomplishments. But like Ruben, Priya Mean had setbacks too. In the entrepreneur space, you're told, fail fast or fail often or yeah. whatever. But I think that men are able to fail up, right? And women, not so much, right? And I just feel like the bar is set so high for women. It's it's really, really hard, especially for women of color. And then, you know, it's set lower for men and it's unimaginably low for white men. The fundamental problem she faced as a new working mom and the solution she devised next time on Diverse Disruptors. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is presented by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Northwestern Mutual, and Generator, with support from Verizon, United Way's Tequity, and Alverno College. With handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab, Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by Nate Imig, and audio engineering by Kenny Perez. Segment producing by Salam Fatayer and 88.9's web editor, is Evan Retleski. Radio Milwaukee's marketing team is led by director Sarah Lahr with creative and coordinating support by Aaron Bagada. Community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director and Kevin Sucker is our executive director. Of course, biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content from Radio Milwaukee possible. If you're interested in learning more about Radio Milwaukee membership, visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts, including Diverse Disruptors Season 1. That's at RadioMilwaukee.org slash podcasts. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.